0: Hello, and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician and multiple Ironman finisher coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. I know that it seems like a couple of weeks since the pandemic dominated the news cycle, and so for many, you could be excused if you thought the whole COVID-19 fiasco was a nightmare in our past, something to be discussed, but potentially no longer worried about. This misconception is further enhanced by the fact that a couple of Ironman-branded races are actually on the brink of actually happening, one in Lubbock, Texas, next week, and the other set for Muncie, Indiana, in mid-July. Look, just like all of you, I want to get back on a start line more than anything, but maybe more than most, I only want to do so when it's safe and actually makes sense. The reality, and especially in Texas, where cases of coronavirus are literally breaking records every single day, is that we haven't yet reached a point where either of those conditions has remotely been reached. I'm sure you've seen the video that Ironman put out recently showing everyone their plans for a return to racing. It was great. It gave hope gave optimism. Heck, it gave me some enthusiasm that this could even work. But one thing that those videos didn't have in them was 2,000 athletes, many of whom, if recent COVID data is to be believed, and I for one absolutely believe them, will be asymptomatically infected and spreading the illness at these events. Look, I'm sorry, folks, but it is simply foolhardy to be returning to these kinds of events right now, and for Iron Man to allow them to proceed puts them on the hook for anything that happens as a result. I know that they're fed up with canceling races and hearing from disgruntled athletes about refund woes, but it will be a significantly worse look for Iron Man if one of these events results in hundreds contracting this disease and possibly several deaths as a consequence of that. This is completely preventable and pulling the pin is simply the prudent and smart thing to do. If you are slated to participate in one of these events, I urge you to think long and hard about whether or not that is really right for you and your family. In the short term, a race seems like a wonderful idea, but the long-term consequences of that could be unthinkable. On the show today, I begin my series on diversity in triathlon, or to put it more appropriately, the lack of it. Based on statistics put out by both USAT and the WTC, triathlon in North America remains an incredibly homogenous sport with respect to race. Less than 2% of Ironman finishers are people of color, and per USAT, while the number is slightly higher in shorter distance races, it is still nothing to be proud of. Since the death of George Floyd at the hands of police in Minnesota, this has ignited yet again discussions of racism, but this time not just in America, but actually around the world. So I thought that it was a good time to examine this issue in our sport. Why does triathlon remain so persistently white? Do we have a racism issue, or are there other factors at play here? Well, I've had some remarkable conversations on this subject, and I'm really very excited to share the first one of these and the others to come on this and upcoming episodes. Marcus Fitz is the founder of the District Triathlon Team and Grit Triathlon, and as a black man, is one of a small number of USAT-certified coaches representing his community. Marcus joined me to talk at length about why triathlon has been slow to grow in the black community, and I know that you will find the conversation as enlightening and entertaining as I did. Before that, though, the medical question for this episode has me discussing the recently published USAT return to racing guidelines with a colleague of mine, Dr. David Wiles from Denver Health Medical Center. David is the head of infectious diseases at the hospital, and while not a triathlete, he's perfectly suited to help me and you understand if those guidelines make sense, and if they can, under the best conditions in a real-world setting, allow for us to return to racing in any kind of safe manner. David joins me for that discussion, and that's coming up right now. With lockdowns easing and the numbers of COVID cases decreasing in many areas of the United States and indeed around the world, society is beginning to open up. And with that, people have begun to consider the possibility of a return to racing. Recently, both the USAT and WTC put out guidelines for race directors and athletes, proposing a phased approach to a return to events. But in many ways, these raised more questions than they did give answers. For instance, where did these guidelines come from? How much were they based on science? And how much just on opinion? And most importantly, would following them offer the best protection to athletes who are concerned about keeping themselves from contracting this dangerous illness? Well, to help answer some of these questions, I'm joined by a colleague today. Dr. David Wiles is a graduate of Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine and currently is a professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Colorado and is chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Denver Health Medical Center. Dr. Wiles does a lot of research into hepatitis C virus infection and treatment, and clinically, he's involved in the care of patients with hepatitis C and hepatitis C and HIV co-infection. More recently, since the pandemic washed across this country, Dr. Wiles has taken an active role in the detection and management of COVID-19 infection. But today, I am thrilled to say he's been able to take some time to join me on the TriDoc podcast and discuss some of these guidelines and their impact on the possibility of contracting COVID-19 at a future triathlon. Welcome to the podcast, David.
1: Thanks very much, Jeff. It's my pleasure to be here. This is my first official podcast, I think.
0: Oh, well, uh, I'll have to be careful and uh, go easy (laughs) on you. Uh, So tell me, David, I I don't think you do triathlon, do you? No, sir. But you do keep yourself fit. Uh, Do you run, uh, bike? Uh,
1: What do you do? I do. I, I Run a little bit, just, uh, and, and mountain bike mostly, and then hiking. Uh, in a former life, I played a lot of volleyball in high school and college and even afterwards.
0: Oh, okay. Well, uh, then all we need to do is get you into the pool, and uh, next thing you know, we'll have a, a budding triathlete. Yeah, right. So, I know you've had a chance to uh, look at the guidelines uh, issued by the USAT, and uh, I'm really curious uh, to get your uh, thoughts in sort of a global perspective as to what you think about these guidelines in terms of Getting risk.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, the first thing that struck me, there's a lot of um, similar themes you see there to, to uh, things we try to do in other spheres of our lives. Right. Um, trying to modify our practices and whatever it be, in this case, in resuming competition for triathletes, um, yet doing things that we've now, unfortunately, maybe kind of come to accept as second nature. So ways we can maintain social distancing as we at the same time are trying to bring groups of competition um the the use of um meticulous hand hygiene what we say when we mean hand hygiene would be frequent hand washing or use of alcohol based disinfectants um And then for those not participating in the events, and I think this is something we'll get to, is, you know, masking and use of gloves. Um, I think you'll have some questions later about masking for uh, in other spheres as training and things go on. But those things all resonate and they're they're things we hear about in many spheres of our lives. Um, So it makes sense to use them, I think.
0: I mean, a lot of times I'm hearing, uh, you know, perusing Facebook or other kinds of social media, triathletes are wondering, why do they even need to concern themselves with this? I mean, this is a generally healthy group. Uh, COVID-19 doesn't seem to be affecting uh, a lot of the younger individuals. Uh, Is this something they really need to worry about?
1: Yeah, you know, that's a great question. And I think you're right um, in that we expect uh, a group of triathletes, obviously, is pretty a highly self-selecting group for those who are going to be fit. Um, And they probably are at less risk for severe, they definitely are at less risk for severe disease from COVID, uh, from coronavirus infection or the disease COVID-19. I think a couple things to keep in mind though, obviously um, for the individual, their risk may be lower for severe disease, but you have to think about all the folks they then interact with, whether that be your family at home and whether you might have persons at home who are going to be more susceptible to severe disease. Um, and certainly nobody would want to be a position where they have a loved one that's more susceptible that they might have brought back COVID infection to who could get sick. Um, and then uh, there's the public health aspect where even if somebody may not get sick, if they get infected with COVID, um, they could potentially still be a vector for spreading it throughout the community, throughout their other social circles. So. Um, while I agree with you completely for the individual, uh, a triathlete who's healthy, their risk of getting um, severe disease is probably pretty minimal. Um, There are those other things to think about.
0: And I guess, uh, I mean, we have seen in our own clinical practice that Being fit, being healthy isn't 100% protective. People who've contracted this have ended up on ventilators, even though they've been in really good shape uh, before that. So it's not all, you know, it's not like you can just drop all athletes in a basket and say they're not going to get sick if they get this, yeah.
1: Um yep yeah, yeah, nothing's hundred percent
0: another another thing that i've uh kind of come across uh or an opinion that's been expressed is uh you know triathlons take place outside, and uh we're seeing now that uh, numbers are decreasing as the weather's gotten warm and people are getting outside, uh, which is a mm-hmm. great thing uh since triathlons occur outside and over a fairly long distance uh, how does that mitigate risk and you know again, is this something we really need to be worrying
1: about yeah and um so I think being outside is, is a great thing, and it, it almost certainly does lower the risk of transmission. There was a, a pretty large study that looked at, oh gosh, thousands of transmission events from China, You know, one of the earlier places, earliest places with the outbreak, and they, they really could not find much evidence of outdoor transmission. Almost all transmissions seem to occur within buildings, households, particularly among household contacts, things like that. So I, I definitely think the risk is much lower outside. Um, You just have the air volume, right? We think most of this or a lot of it is droplet transmission, maybe even small respiratory droplets, uh, even to airborne transmission. So when you're outside with UV exposure and just the large volume for disbursement of any particulate that's expelled from an infected person, the chances that infection occurs outdoors, I do think, are much lower. Um, There have been concerns, you know, during physical activity, if your respiratory rate increases, deeper breathing, things like that, whether there might be a, a little further spread or a larger cloud, but it, that's not really been certain, certainly not been proven. And this gets to one of the comments you made earlier about how much of this is based on just kind of expert opinion, um, kind of maybe stuff that is intuitively makes sense, and how much is based on data. And I would say, um, for the risk of outdoor transmission, we have very little data. Uh, what we do have suggests it's it's rel- pretty low in an outdoor setting.
0: Okay, well, that's definitely all of that is. Uh Good news, especially given that triathletes are returning to outdoor training at this point and right. training often yeah. uh, with others. Uh, okay, well, let's uh, proceed through some of the various elements of a race and consider some of the recommendations that were made in those guidelines and uh, consider mm-hmm. each of them on their merits. Uh, we'll begin first with check-in procedures and thinking about some of those guidelines and thinking about how effective they would be in reducing the likelihood of transmission if there were individuals either in as volunteers or as athletes who who may have an infection. Uh, it seems to me that reducing the contact points, so keeping uh, crowding down uh, by having, uh, you know, your registration and your packet pickup pretty much all uh, either online or by mail, that those seem like pretty good ideas and and good public health kind of thinking to try and reduce infect- infectivity and the, the likelihood of infection amongst a large group,
1: correct? I, I absolutely agree with those. I thought some of those were pretty neat and kind of ingenious and and, and probably actually in some ways may simplify things for contestants. You know, if you can register earlier or pick your stuff up ahead of time and avoid some of the maybe chaos at the beginning in the morning, um, it all makes sense. Um, I think, uh, you know, looking at other aspects like starting uh, where maybe everybody congregates. I don't know if you're going to get to that later. I may be jumping ahead, but I thought that was interesting about, you know, staggered starts and whether you can time groups. I'd actually be interested to hear flipping the switch a little bit, you know, I don't know how much of a sense of being in a race for the triathletes is is being in that big group and kind of having, you know, everybody starting at once and kind of running off and and being among the groups. And if that would take something away by having, you know, more timing and staggered starts, which much with much smaller groups. Well, Um, it's interesting. Yeah,
0: it's interesting. That's been a debate in the triathlon world over the last couple of years because uh, Ironman has gone away from the mass starts because there's been so much focus on deaths during the swim. Uh, I've actually covered that in an earlier episode, uh, Mm. uh, you know, because swimming is really the most dangerous part of a triathlon with respect to sudden death amongst athletes. And one of the things that's been done over the years is uh, to try and reduce the, the, you know, the things that stress. Athletes out, so contact having uh, you mm-hmm. know the big mass and everything else, and also it makes it much more difficult for rescuers is to take away yeah. those mass starts so most races these days actually have a um, self seated time trial type start, but you mm-hmm. still have athletes together in a large group sort of in a corral so we'll we'll get to that in just a second i want yeah. I want to move to the race morning check in just a step before the swim yeah. because there were a few guidelines in there that I found maybe you know I wondered uh, Uh, you know, almost questionable. And the big one is really fever checks. Um, You know, we know looking at the literature that less than, I mean, certainly uh, I think it's a third is what the last I saw, but certainly uh, less than half of patients who are infected with COVID will actually manifest a fever. And I'm just wondering how effective you think fever checks are, because I'm seeing them done pretty much everywhere now.
1: That's, I think, a great question. I knew I was forgetting something when I went through that first portion, and that was exactly it. I, you know, uh, they're going to be done. I think that's the first thing. I, I think it's going to be hard to get folks away from them. But I think your points are completely valid. So particularly if you're talking about with within a short time frame. So when somebody's coming to check in that morning, the chances of you catching a fever, even in somebody with COVID, as you've alluded to already, is probably pretty low. Maybe less than half, or maybe even a third will ha- you know would have a fever. When we look over the long period, sure, persons who get infected with COVID-19, particularly ones that get admitted to the hospital, they almost all have fever at some point. But again, at any one point in time, you catching that fever and using that as a meaningful way to screen out somebody is unlikely, I think. And and we've had instances where the literature has looked at you know airport screening for not just SARS-CoV-2, what we're dealing with now, but the first SARS outbreak back in 2002, 2003. And there's really... Almost no evidence that airport screening really helps you catch anything when you look for temperatures like that. Um, And we have to remember as well that we now have a better appreciation when somebody's infected with SARS CoV 2, the virus that causes COVID 19. um, We know there's a pre symptomatic period where they do appear to be infectious. For most people, that probably ranges from somewhere about to three to four days. The mean onset is about five days for symptoms. Um, And so, again, you still You still may have somebody in their pre-symptomatic period. doesn't mean they're not infectious and they they won't have a fever. So I share your opinion that it's probably not terribly helpful. Uh, I guess I struggle with um, how how to get away from it when it's become so entrenched, but maybe it shouldn't
0: be. Yeah. And I mean, then the other question is, is like when you don't have anything objective that you can look for and that's sort of one you can hang your hat on, I guess it's hard to get people away from it. Right. Um, another one of these uh, uh, guidelines or suggestions is to have like hand sanitizer just everywhere, and I, I find that almost comical, given how in the healthcare you know industry that we're both a part of. I mean, especially yourself yeah. in infectious disease. I mean, getting healthcare workers to use hand sanitizer is uh, has been an uphill struggle for decades, and now we're just assuming that oh, triathletes in transition, if we just provide hand sanitizer, they're going to use it, no problem.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. It, it is hard to get people to use it routinely. Um, and, and so, obviously, if you don't use it, it's not going to help. Um, the flip side, although we don't have really have the data with COVID 19, but we, we extrapolate from what we do know about many other uh, infectious diseases, if it is used and used consistently, it certainly can work in a hospital setting. Now, again, when you take the alcohol dispenser out of the hospital and right outside the patient's room and you're Moving it to your everyday life, using it at home, wiping down all your surfaces or using it at the beginning of a race. Is it as a, as effective in those situations? This is another area where we really don't have any data to know how effective it's going to be in, in the wild, if you will, right. um, as opposed to in a hospital setting.
0: Okay, and then the last one, and the one that really uh, is makes for, really, difficulties for race organizers is enlarging transition areas to keep people further apart. Now, intuitively, that o- obviously makes a lot of sense. Uh, having spent a lot of time in transition areas uh, over the last 20 years, I can tell you that, uh, I, I mean, they would have to, depending on the race, I mean, I, I think the bigger issue is not so much enlarging transition size. They actually have to just reduce the volume of people because some of these races, right. Iron Man, especially, you're talking about two to three thousand individuals. And right. I I mean that just doesn't seem tenable right now.
1: No, I mean you, you know much more about the logistics of the transition areas than I would, but yeah, that was that was the thing that popped into my head right when you started on this was you know whether you enlarge the area or you have to reduce the size of the races or again as we alluded to and maybe we'll come back to the staggered starts maybe decreases the size in the transition area at any one time although obviously have racers of different speeds are, are going to catch up or, or to each other and may still cluster
0: yeah um do you have a sense of uh what i mean i know we're starting to see some guidance from uh, the colorado department of public health where they're talking about returning to um sporting events or or sports um recreational sports talking about you know Youth sports of like groups of fifty, for example, and I'm just curious what your thoughts would be about. You know, if if there was going to be a triathlon, I mean, what would be a safe number? Do you have hmm. any sense of that?
1: Uh, uh, as an absolute number, I don't really. To frankly, to be honest with you, Jeff, I think um, some of it would depend on what the other measures were that you could put in um, to to decreases the size that are congregating in small areas at the same time. In other words you know a lot of these the guidance that i read through briefly and some of the other ones talk about mass gatherings and talking about you know what's the definition of a mass gathering and so i think it depends on what type of structural and procedural controls you can put in place even if you have a large group at the same place to do a triathlon if you can maintain some spread in that group throughout the course of the event um you know what what's really the effective size of, of a gathering you're talking about um in, in terms of what the optimal size is uh, you know I, I I wouldn't be able probably to venture an accurate guess right yeah it's still guesswork now sure
0: okay well let's move on to the swim and uh, you know I I I can't imagine a way you're going to be able to get a large group of people not to congregate around waiting for their start. I mean, that's just the nature of the beast. When you have yeah. swim starts and triathlon, people are anxious to get going. They're standing around in their wetsuits. They're just kind of they're milling about. And, uh, you know, every race I've ever been to, uh, people will, uh, you know, move towards the start line and it just gets more and more dense. Uh, that, that one is going to be a tough one. I, I really don't yeah. know how they're going to get around it, but let's just move past that and just like once people are in the water i mean mm-hmm. yeah you know, like i said mass starts are out so you don't have this huge volume of swimmers all together i mean but you know th- you do pass people i know that uh, you know when i get in the race I- i'm moving past people or people are moving past me and we frequently turn to the side and breathe and you know it's At heavy breathing time. yeah exactly yeah. so i yeah. mean Do you have any sense of, uh, I mean, this is so hard, obviously, to speculate on, but it just seems to me that it wouldn't be that high of a risk. I mean, I try to think of how many times have I ever caught a cold, you know, swimming. And I I would say that I can't remember that ever happening. So it just seems to me that given that this is another type of coronavirus, similar to the one Mm -hmm. that causes a cold, you know, extrapolating just seems to me that swimming in open water shouldn't be that dangerous. Do Do you concur?
1: I do. I share that sense that uh, I think the risk would probably be extremely low during the swim portion. I actually took a peek. I saw that question there. I was like, good Lord, I have no idea. Um, but, you know, looked on the CDC and some other places. They really don't really don't have any guidance except to say that there's been no documented transmission through water sources. Uh, you know, some of that they're talking about chlorinated public pools and other things where there may be additional things in the water to prevent transmission. But even in, you know, a LA, lake, an ocean, things like that, I I would expect the risk of transmission from a swim, even in close proximity, would be extremely low. Okay.
0: Uh, yeah, my thoughts, exactly. And then, uh, you know, the uh, changes that have been recommended on the bike and the run, they, they both, again, are similar to what we saw for check-in procedures, they're really geared towards uh, reducing the number of people, fewer volunteers, uh, those volunteers that are there wearing gloves to try and reduce the amount yeah. of contact, uh, having uh, racers be much more uh, self-supported, so not necessarily getting hand-ups of bottles. Uh, it seems to me that those things all make sense. I guess the, the one sort of thing i wondered about was um not not so much for the bike because the bike seems to me to be the safest part of the course but really on the run a lot of run courses have uh narrow sort of out and back courses where you're really uh, pretty densely packed with runners Uh, now Mm -hmm. you know a big thing about this virus is that it's not just the fact that you're in proximity to someone but it really is the amount of time and um I, it just seems to me that, again, because it's outside, uh, because you're not going to be sitting there. I mean, often runners will chat with each other as they're <laughs> going along. But but for the most part, this seems like a fairly low risk kind of yeah. endeavor to me. I, I, again, would be interested in your opinion on that.
1: Yeah, I, I do think a lot of the same principles, if you will, apply or at least the same kind of calculus in my head. You know, when you're outdoors with large air volumes or even air movement, The risk during a run is probably pretty small, particularly if if folks are going the opposite way, like if it's an out and back and you're passing somebody going the other way, I think it would be extremely small. Um, You know, I suppose if you're running directly behind somebody for, you know, several miles and and are there for 10 minutes or something in that same position, maybe there'd be some risk. But again, there's still so much dispersal when you're in an outdoor environment shortly after exhalation that I think it's still going to be very minimal outdoors during a run.
0: Okay, well, that gets us to uh, a general question, and this goes beyond just the the guidelines for racing. And uh, I want to be clear before we we get to this that I am one hundred percent supportive of people wearing masks. At this time, when they are out and about, uh, if you're yeah. going to the grocery store, if you're going to the park with individuals, if you're uh, if you're just out there, uh, you know, doing errands, things like that, I believe uh, completely that you should be wearing a mask. It decreases uh, your risk, it decreases the risk of those around you, and it just makes sense from a public health perspective. Now, that being said. The question is whether or not a mask is really required when you're actually exercising, biking, or running. Again, with this idea that you are on your own that you're moving, you know, past anybody that you're going to be, you know, Mm -hmm. who might be walking on the same path uh, fairly quickly, or if you're biking, that you're not going to be, you know, uh, around anybody very much. Uh, Mm -hmm. My feeling, again, has been extrapolating from previous experience. I don't remember ever catching a cold just out riding my bike or on a run. And it seems to me that COVID-19 shouldn't be all that different. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, uh, there's been these papers that have been published, uh, Uh, theoretical papers showing computer modeling, suggesting that when you're running, you're spreading huge amounts of droplets. And I think that they're interesting, but it seems to me that in the real world, uh, the theoretical probably breaks down. And, uh, I, I value your professional opinion on this very much. What are your thoughts about the need for masks when biking or running?
1: Yeah. I, again, I, I think you've, I think you've got it right. You know, when, when you talk about running or biking, and especially as we've already kind of alluded to, if you're going by somebody and, and the amount of time you're in any proximity to them, and, and most of the times when you're riding or biking, you're probably not even going to be within six feet uh, of people, um, that the chances of, of spreading is is nil and and that really wearing a mask should not be required um, when you're exercising, running or biking. And I, I did take a little look around. I mean, and I couldn't find anywhere that and in, in many places, like in New York, it was there were stipulations that if you were exercising as long as you kept distancing, you didn't need to be wearing a mask, things like that. And in that modeling paper you're talking about, um, even the authors themselves came back and kind of tried to clarify things that this was a, a, a kind of a, a, a physics experiment, a, an, an airflow experiment, not really meant to imply that necessarily transmission would be occurring, but just to show the dispersal of air molecules, kind of the wake uh, of the air around somebody who's running or moving through space on a bike. Um, but again, they kind of, I think, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm speaking for them, were a little dismayed that it was taken as meaning, oh, that there could be transmission here. That wasn't really the intent of that paper in in my understanding
0: either. Yeah, I got that sense as well. And, uh, you know, it blew up initially and it was really yeah. taken by, you know, both the cycling and running communities as, oh, my gosh. and 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 you'll see a lot of, you know, very menacing, threatening sort of uh, posts on social media from people. Oh, I was in the park and this runner came by without a mask yeah. on, and how dare they! And 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 I get it, I get it. The fear is real, but at the same time, again, I think like yeah. you've said, uh, it just seems uh, unrealistic. Um, that being said, if people you know feel strongly about wearing a mask when they bike or run, I, absolutely, I would not tell them to stop. Uh, I just think that uh, it's probably not as necessary. Um yeah. okay and then the last question i want to ask because this is particularly pertinent at this moment when we're starting to see signs of uh, swimming pools opening. Um mm-hmm. what are your thoughts about getting into a pool? Is it I, now we've talked about the transmission in water i don't think that's the yeah. issue i think the bigger issue yeah. is just uh, you know swimming pools outdoor swimming pools probably less right. of a risk than indoor ones but still yeah. You're putting yourself in a little bit closer proximity to other individuals. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, what are, what are your thoughts about swimming? Uh, fairly safe? Yeah. Uh, less safe?
1: I, I think I think it's fairly safe or certainly safe, at least the swimming part, I guess, you know, what comes to my mind, you know, if you're congregating outside the pool or if, if a triathletes going to the pool to train, especially in the summer in an outdoor pool, if it's a community pool or where there's lanes. You know that are set up for for lap swim, but there's others that aren't. The risk is probably the congregation around the pool, not the actual swimming inside the pool. So I think there just just for folks to keep in mind the same social distancing distancing things we've talked about before. Again, I don't think the risk is in the pool when you're swimming. It's going to be around the pool in the locker room, other things where there might be more congregation.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, there's been a lot of controversy about how much this virus is spread by contact with surfaces. And yes, I I think the jury remains out on that. Um, And I wonder, you know, for like, I think about my own circumstance with my pool, I have to go into the gym through the locker room, and then out Mm -hmm. to the deck to the pool. And and in doing that, I have to, you know, operate several doors. Um, You know, is that something you would worry about?
1: Um, you know, is there risk there? There's some. As you're alluding to, you know, the CDC relatively recently came out and kind of backed off a little bit on on the risk from fomites, you know, touching foreign objects and getting COVID-19 from that foreign object and then, you know, essentially infecting yourself after that touching. And it, it certainly does seem it's close personal contact with droplet, what we would call. So generally within three feet or a meter, there's probably some more transmission as you go out to kind of six feet from smaller droplets, maybe some respiratory spread. And then it really now starting to look like, you know, that type of touching contact um, stuff through an inanimate object is probably the, the lowest of those risks. Um, it certainly does not seem to be the predominant way um, that, that COVID-19 is spread.
0: Excellent. Great. Well, this has uh, been an incredibly helpful conversation. And I think, uh, honestly, pretty optimistic because, you know, yeah. right now there are races still on the calendar for people in the fall. I, I'm having a hard time believing they're going to go off. I think that uh, right. they, they will likely be canceled because of just the size of the uh, the the events themselves. But, you know, it, it's, it's encouraging to hear that there is hope to have these things and to mitigate, uh, you know, the risk of infection to participants and organizers. So uh, this has been a yeah. really useful conversation and I very much appreciate your time. Uh, Dr. Wiles uh, is a graduate of Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. He is uh, currently the chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases at my very own hospital, Denver Health Medical Center. And uh, David, I can't thank you enough for joining me today on the TriDoc podcast to discuss uh, the potential for returning to racing uh, in the uh, time of the COVID-19 pandemic.
1: Thanks, Jeff. My pleasure.
0: My guest today is Marcus Fitz. Marcus is a Washington, D.C.-based interactive designer, founder of District Triathlon, Grit USA, and is a USAT Level 1 coach. With over eight years of strategic branding, interactive, and graphic design and development experience, his mission is to help businesses identify their why. He believes creative thinking starts from within. It starts from the idea that things can be done differently. Much of his time and passion is spent building creative concepts and visuals to help businesses and individuals share their unique stories and values. And I'm very excited that he has taken some time out of his day to join me on the TriDoc podcast to discuss what really has been something I've been thinking a lot about recently, and that is how to increase diversity in the sport that I love so much. Welcome uh, to the TriDoc podcast, and thank you so much for joining me today,
2: Marcus Awesome. Thank you so much for the introduction, Jeff, and I'm really excited to be here.
0: Marcus, you know, uh, when we got connected uh, on Facebook and uh, in our uh, brief communication since then, I've expressed to you uh, my concerns about the fact that triathlon, as it is today, does not represent, uh, it does not reflect, if you will, the population in general. Less than 1% of Ironman athletes are black. Uh, Why do you think that is? What is the persistent issue in triathlon that keeps it from being more diverse?
2: Yeah, and this is this is definitely a question that comes up a lot. I've, I've been on a couple panels with, um, you know, the Endurance Exchange and Triathlon Business International. And it's, it's a common question that keeps um, coming up no matter where you are or how you talk about the sport of not only triathlon, but other uh, multi-sports and um, endurance sports. And so I, I swam competitively in college, um, which is, has pretty similar issues to the triathlon with inclusion, diversity. And I think that's kind of like where it starts is, is swimming. That's one of the, like the main factors. It is really, if you can't swim, you can't do a triathlon. So right out the box, if you have that checked, um, that's definitely a barrier of entry to the sport. Um, and it's not just, it's across the board. I mean, it's, it's, Huge in the black community, um, one because of you know segregation um, and a long history of access to pools. Um, but among other other things, the ability to swim, the access to, to pools, um, just general awareness of the sport. It, I, I didn't know anything about triathlon until recently, until after I got out of college. You know, so you have a huge age gap in the awareness of the sport. And if you look at the demographics um, that were last posted in 2016, majority of uh, triathletes are between like 35 and 45. So most people aren't finding out about it until they're adult. Now that's starting to change, but the the lowest demographic of triathletes are actually in their 20s. And now that was really surprising to me. And that's across the board, no matter what the, um, you know, the race um, or gender is. And then another uh, reason is finances. So it's very, it's in a very expensive sport. You're not just buying shoes to go running. You have to buy a bike and a helmet and you know biking shorts and all the equipment to you know change a flat um, tire in a race. And then you have swimming. You know most teams and clubs they have dues or you need to pay for access to a pool. Um, or even sometimes a track. Um, in D.C., we're very fortunate if you're a D.C. resident, um, pools are free uh, for D.C. residents. And that's not the case pretty much most of the United States, um, I think. And our pools are actually very, very nice. So we have a lot of benefit to being a D.C. resident. Um, and within the black community, um, some of the high schools have have pools, whether they're aware of it or not. And then um, I say team inclusion and, and representation. You know, there's we have one black professional triathlete, and a lot of um, one of the reasons for you want to feel accepted by the sport that you're interested in, if you don't see that could be a barrier. If you don't see, you know, someone that looks like you participating in the sport, it's like, ah, oh, That sport's not for me because I don't see anybody that is excelling or at least making the sport cool. It's like we're in this era of flash and flair and we look at basketball and like LeBron James and Michael Jordan and they have like cool shoes and cool apparel and jerseys and triathlon really isn't at that level in general. So that's kind of like a a unusual barrier um, in itself.
0: Gosh, you said so many things there that I want to try and get back to because there's like so much to unpack. I, I want to really begin with the swimming part because uh, I think that for me, coming from Canada, I did not appreciate the racial background, at access to pools. And I wonder if you could go a little bit into that for my listeners who may not appreciate how much of a history of racism pool access. And I mean, it it even comes up now. I've seen even in the last year or two, you see stories of uh, um, black teenagers having police called on them because they're at private pools that are otherwise white. I mean, this is a longstanding, um, uh, you know, almost uh, there's a subtext of racism and access to pools that has kept black Americans from swimming. And I, I learned a lot about it when, and I'm I'm sorry, I'm forgetting her name. the The Black American who won a gold medal. She actually shared the gold medal with uh, the Canadian woman Penny yeah. uh, in the last Olympics, and that that brought a lot of stories about uh, how the racist past of swimming. Could you could you talk a little bit about that and and how that has sort of kept Black Americans from even today going into swimming, and therefore also, okay. like you said, triathlon.
2: Definitely, I mean. I don't even know where to start. You know, there, there's so many. I mean, we're looking at like, for instance, the UK, they just had their first um, African-American woman um, uh, on on the team to compete in the Olympics. You know, this is 2020, gearing up for the Olympics now has been pushed back. But like, just looking at that number, that statistic is, is wild to me. And, you know, not too far, um, you know, recently we've had, Black swimmers on Team USA. Um, So I don't know the numbers or or the years or time frame of the history of of segregation in in U.S. swimming or just swimming, period, um, to to quote them. But it's it's kind of been like a, a, a good boys club. You know, certain pools, um, the, uh, just like the water fountains, white water fountains, black water fountains, it's pretty similar with pools. Um, a perfect movie for reference would be Pride. Have you have you seen it? I have not. I haven't heard of it. Um, it's a swimming movie that um, touches based on Terrence Howard's in it. I think Bernie Mac okay. is in it. And a couple other uh, well-known actors are in it. And it, it kind of breaks down the history of that um, pool access. It's a team that's trying to create a, a black swim team in a time where there really weren't any. And that that's a really good reference to kind of understand the historical context of how it's been difficult for, for blacks um, in America to, to have pool access and to be able to swim safely and openly um, without restriction.
0: And my and understanding then, the, is that in inner cities, there are now programs to try and introduce swimming to, to blacks more and more. That, that that is something that has changed in a positive way.
2: There are. And, there, and there's also some that have been created for triathlon as well. Um, D.C. has a program called D.C. Wave, um, which is it's an all inclusive, uh, publicly funded swim team. Um, through DC uh, Parks and Recs, and that's one of it's huge now. It started; it's only been around for a couple of years, um, and it really, really took off. Um, I'm not sure. I know Atlanta. I've heard of programs in Atlanta for both youth and adults, and and the elderly um, for senior citizens who want to get more active and get their um, health, like water Zumba and swim lessons and stuff like that. But you, you you don't hear about them. You have to like really search and find them. And if they're not made um, readily available. Um, you kind of have to dig or know somebody. If you if you know, you know kind of thing. Right. Um, which I hope we can get more traction and more awareness to. It's just like all right, how like what? How much money and how much resources are we going to be able to dedicate uh, to raise awareness for these different programs and initiatives?
0: Right.
2: Um, yeah.
0: And then the other thing you said was uh, about the lack of uh, black athletes, black professional athletes. And, and that's something that obviously is very, very you know obvious. I mean, uh, clearly when you you have less than 1% of the athletes are black, you, it, that's going to be reflected in the pro ranks. You're going to have a very small number. I looked. I mean, the only one I could find historically was Max Fennell, was the first uh, yeah. black uh, professional athlete. And uh, as far as I could tell, he, he wasn't in the sport for that long. And now mm-hmm. Sika Henry, is uh, the female uh, very promising uh, black uh, athlete who um, unfortunately had injuries last year and uh, was looking forward to a good season this year until obviously everything yeah. has come <laughs> undone. So we'll see how that goes for her going forward. But there's no question having someone that looks like you is is you know that like you said role models very important. Um, do you know uh, is there? Um, a competitive team or is there a, 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 is there any kind of movement to get uh, an elite group of uh, black athlete black triathletes
2: so from what I know the team that I created is the only one hmm. from the research that I've done and that's why I created Grip USA is to kind of be that bridge um, so after creating District Triathlon, you know, I felt that we had created and molded a great entry level uh, program to bring uh, blacks, black people into the sport of triathlon. Um, but then we got to this level. It's like, you know, with the lack of resources and, and funding, it became hard to kind of cater to the full spectrum of athletes. And so with grit is specifically geared to that more competitive athlete. Um, and that's that's where my focus is And uh, you know, trying to partner and have a feeder program. We uh, were working with uh, Strive to Try uh, not too long ago as a youth program to kind of feed into a more development program. Um, but they had dissolved, have recently dissolved their nonprofit. So it's it's been kind of hard finding kind of like a feeding system into it. Um I think the success for us is going to get into high school program. Mm-hmm. Um we start at a young um and recruiting runners um with natural talent we can mold swimming and mold cycling but it's hard to establish a solid uh run foundation and I think that's um prime for building an elite level triathlete. Yeah something you it's hard to teach. You can mold it and develop it, but that run foundation without it, it's hard to make it to that next um, level of, of being like an elite level athlete.
0: Yeah, and the last thing that you mentioned that I wanted to touch on was the finances. Of course, you know I hear that frequently, and that that's not exclusive to black athletes. That's everybody. I mean, it is a steep. Uh, a steep price of entry to get into triathlon obviously that's gonna that's gonna affect minority communities disparately because the just based on the socioeconomic statistics I mean you know minority communities tend to have less resources in general coming into it Um, and I I don't know that there's an easy answer to that but uh, it'd be great to see programs that uh, could somehow um, you know, subsidize minority athletes uh, and not just black athletes. But uh, I, I did an interview uh, that's going to air after this one with uh, an immigrant athlete, and he mentioned the same thing where, you know, the price uh, of entry is, is very steep, especially if you're an immigrant who, who doesn't have that kind of disposable income. Um, I, I wanted to touch a little bit on what it's like being a black athlete in a sport that's so predominantly white. Um, you know, I, Obviously, the extreme case of Ahmad Arbery is something that, uh, you know, fortunately doesn't happen on a day-to-day basis, thank goodness. But do you encounter or do black athletes encounter racism at triathlons or while training for triathlons? And, and, and if so, I'd like to know about that because it's the kind of thing that I would want to be watching for and want to know how to make sure that I was, uh, you know, acutely aware of.
2: Yeah. I mean, I've never experienced like kind of blatant, you know, racism in your face. Like it's usually more like little microaggressions or like passive um, statements or or comments. Um, A lot of them are usually related to um, ability um, or specifically like swimming ability so I remember going to races in, in the past, whether or not I'm actually participating in the race or if I'm like going to cheer on friends, um, it would be like, you know, you can do this. You know, I know swimming's hard or, or something. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm a really good swimmer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that's kind of like the least of my concerns with the triathlon. And so like, there's this, I guess this um, mindset that, you know, all black people can't swim you know, or that's kind of, I see that and I hear that whether or not it's meant to be that way, but it's kind of, it comes off like, oh, you can do this, you know, just get in there and practice and you can do a triathlon yourself. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I was like, I, you know, I do this. This is, this is my thing. There's no issues here. And even for our team coming in where we have like swag and kits and, and all that. And there's still like this question of whether or not we'd be able to successfully complete, uh, the race, um, or even from like a cycling standpoint, because I, I train with a lot of cycling groups so I can, uh, you know, get my cycling ability up, um, and race more competitively within triathlon, but also within the world of cycling. And I'll get the comments, uh, like, oh man, how'd you get your bike? You know what you mean? Like I I paid for it, you know, (laughs) Like, just like anybody else here, like I worked for my bike and I paid for, it, you know, just like you. So you have those, whether it was meant to be like that, but there's this stereotype um, or subconscious, uh, if you will, that may not come off or may come off like that, but they may not think about, I guess.
0: Yeah, I don't even know what to say. I'm speechless. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Yeah. See, I constantly find myself wanting to apologize, even though it's not for me to apologize. But yeah, it's anyways. Um, OK, so you know, here we are at a moment where I think optimistically. I mean, I'd like to be optimistic about this. I, I, I feel like we're on the brink of change, real change. And that is, for the first time, pretty much in all of the years that we've had these kinds of conversations. And that's a really good feeling. So I you know, I've I've been in triathlon long enough to have seen some of the diversity, you know, um initiatives come and go without any real any real like oomph put into it. Um I, I saw the statement that Andrew Messick put out. I thought that uh it was I mean, I thought it seemed pretty good. Uh I was curious what your thoughts were about what he had to say and uh if you had any thoughts in addition to what he said about ways that, you know, triathlon could be made more diverse and more welcoming for black athletes.
2: Yeah, I, I think generally in the sport of triathlon, there's been a lot of, uh, unease with the relationship between USA triathlon and Ironman just in general of how they approach, you know, their, um, races. I mean, Ironman does put on very well organized races, but, how they go about their race planning has been a little controversial in certain areas of the US, even the world. Um, the statement that they made, I'm glad they made a statement and they actually had action steps. Um, I thought that was great. Uh, it did take them a long time to make a statement. And I think the statement came from there was a lot of pressure um, from the community about asking them to make a statement and also within their internal groups, you know, um, women for try, um, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of conversation, uh, amongst them and, you know, some of the other like various Facebook groups for Ironman and Ironman coaching and USA triathlon coaching. So there was a lot of pressure put under them to make a statement. Um, and so my only thing is I'm glad they made it. I hope, um, that they take the time and, and execute the steps that they said they will. And I'll be looking forward to, to seeing how it all kind of plays out and, and unfolds. I mean, other than that, you know, I can't really say you know, any much else about it. Um, but I'm, I'm excited about this, the steps that they're taking. and I hope some of the other, organizations follow, because we have a, a lot of really amazing um, local race series um, that have been talking about how they can be more involved in the community and, you know, is it worth like doing clinics the day before a race or the day of a race to teach people how to swim or create clinics and camps for kids to, to get involved in, um you know, the learning about the world of triathlon, because it's a lot of moving pieces, more pieces than people realize. And also from coaching and race director certification programs, it's like making them accessible to to urban. I I don't really like the word urban, so more like, you know, um, inner city communities um, so that they don't have to travel out to like Colorado or you know the West Coast or Arizona um, to to just get certified.
0: Yeah, those are great great points and uh, great things. What, what what can the individual white triathlete do to make the sport more welcoming? What, what can we do? I mean, besides avoiding some of those obviously you know d- insensitive types of comments. Uh, you know, I, I'm at my next race. I see a black tri, a black triathlete at the race What can I do to, to to make that athlete feel welcome? Yeah, I mean,
2: I think just you know treating people like human beings is just a great step. I mean with any situation regardless of race or or, you know gender it's just being mindful of of You know words, you know, sometimes words hurt and you don't realize that, you know, so being mindful um, you know, before, before you speak. And even if it was out of, uh, you know, you know, there was no ill intent. Um, sometimes it, it does. And, you know, it's just, I think just being mindful, you know, being mindful and treating people like people, but like human beings, um, you know, everybody's at a, at a race to do the best that they can and have fun. And, you know, the same way that you would like to experience a race, um, you know that other person, um, regardless of race or gender, um, is there to experience the race probably in a in a similar in a similar way.
0: I mean, just wise, sage words. Thank you, Marcus, uh, for everything today. I really appreciate the conversation. Uh, Marcus Fitz is a coach. He's the founder of both District Triathlon and Grit USA. Uh, you can find websites for both of those on the interwebs. And, uh, Marcus, you are taking on athletes. Uh, What is the status uh, for your coaching right now?
2: Yeah, so I'm taking on um, -on one-on-one athletes. Um, And also, I mean, our GRIT team is capped at 15 um, members right now for the season. Um, So next year, at the end of the season, uh, we have kind of like a tryout process um, for the following. And it may remain at 15 or it may grow. Um, We're just going to, I mean, this year was kind of like a, (laughs) it was what it was. Um, So next year may look different, um, but we try to decide everything as a team and, and uh, we'll have all those details on either our social media or website. Awesome. Well, I wish you the best of luck with that,
0: Marcus, and uh, best of luck moving forward with uh, uh, everything that's going on right now. And uh, thank you again so much for being on the podcast and helping us understand this uh, complex and, uh, you know, hopefully changing issue.
2: Definitely. Thank you so much, Jeff, for having me. And, you know, I'm really excited to see what uh, future interviews hold.
0: And that's it for another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode? Or do you have a question that you'd like me to consider answering on a future episode? Well, send it to me at tri-doc at icloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit www.try.coaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at www.reverbnation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small, independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question to answer, and I'll continue my exploration into why triathlon remains so persistently white, as told by the participants who make up the small proportion of diversity athletes who get to the start line every year. Until then, train hard, train healthy.